our Bibles for our scripture reading this morning. And as we do, I just want to remind everyone that uh, like we started last week, uh, we're going to uh, divide into various regions one more time and try to get to know people in our respective communities. So after service, feel free to put away the chairs and go to your respective uh, corners and we'll continue fellowship in that way. Our passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56, sermon entitled Grace for Hardened Hearts. Pastor Bill will be continuing in the Gospel of Mark for us. This is God's word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida when he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made. Good morning. As Luke said, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. And one more time, we are faced with the question, who is Jesus? Who is he really? That's Mark's intention. It's the question that everybody around has been asking from the beginning of the chapter. Earlier, people said, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Other people said, no, it's, it's, it's Elijah come back. Or maybe it's just some other kind of prophet. They had heard about Jesus. They knew what he was doing. They knew what to call him. But they weren't exactly sure who this Jesus person was or why he was doing the things that he was doing. They didn't know his true identity. You discover here today that that's not only true for the crowds at large, it's also true for the disciples. It's been true for the disciples, if you remember Back to chapter 4, they were in the boat with Jesus at the time, and there's a storm that threatened to kill them. Jesus told the wind to stop blowing, the waves to be calm. Immediately, everything stopped, and the disciples were absolutely terrified. They asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They realized this is no ordinary human being with them there in the boat. But they still don't know who he is. There's something unusual about him, but they're still not quite sure what that what it is about him that makes him important. Who is this? And so we see today, they still don't know. Jesus walks to them out on the water, gets into the boat. The wind that had been so strong they couldn't row against it, that ceases. 
Verse 51, and they're utterly astounded. Now this is important. Read the rest of the verse. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They were just there with Jesus the previous day. Passage that we looked at last week when he took five loaves and two fish, multiplied them so there was enough food to feed a crowd of many thousands. They were there. They saw it all take place in front of them. They even passed the food out, but they did not understand about the loaves. They knew who had done it, but they failed to understand in that moment what his doing said actually about him. They had an intellectual grasp of the facts. They could retell the story, but they didn't understand what they saw. Did not grasp the meaning of what they saw. They were in the presence of God himself and completely clueless. Now why is that? Very important for us this morning. Why are they not on the same page with God? Why didn't they understand who he is and what he's doing? It's because their hearts were hardened. Which gives you new insight into what it means to have a hard heart. See, typically when we say that somebody's heart is hard, we mean that they have intentionally set themselves against God. That they are flagrantly disregarding what God has to say. They've clearly thought it out and they've decided, no, I have no interest in God. I have no interest in what God tells me. I want nothing to do with him. We think that a hard heart means that someone consciously rejects God. That they're mentally aware of what they're doing. That is obviously part of what it means to have a hardened heart. And yet scripture is more nuanced than that. It says that there can also be an unconscious aspect to having a hardened heart. That you can be hardened against God without making a mental decision like the disciples were so that you're not even aware that you're hardened. And why is that? It's because your heart operates at a level below your cognitive ability. What do I mean by that? Let's unpack a biblical anthropology for a moment. Fancy way of saying God's idea of what it means to be human. What is a biblical anthropology? Biblical anthropology says that our fundamental nature, what is most ultimate about us, is that we are worshipers even more than we are thinkers. That we have a heart that controls what we worship. And that heart controls what we value and what we don't value, what we orient our lives around. It controls what we pursue in life and it controls what drives us to live our lives. That heart then expresses it through all of the rest of your faculties, through what you do, also through what you think. And so your brain thinks about the things that your heart longs for. Your thoughts are oriented by what your heart values. And that's why Jesus will say things like, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Meaning that our mouth says what our heart wants. That in the core of our being, we have this longing for something. We worship something. And our brain works in harmony with our heart. It thinks the thoughts that our heart is already having. And that process begins with the heart that then controls what we think and what comes out of our mouth. Which means, as an aside, that Christianity is not Descartian. You remember Descartes from Philosophy 101. 
Descartes trying to find something in the universe that he cannot doubt, something hard and solid that he can build all the rest of his philosophy on. And he realized that he can doubt an awful lot of the reality around him. He can pretend that it's a fantasy, that it's a dream world. But what he could not doubt was that he was doubting. He could not doubt that he was in the process of actively doubting, that he was thinking about his doubts. And so he grounded the most fundamental aspect of human beings in our ability to think. It's where he comes up with his maxim, I think, therefore I am. Which says that the most ultimate, most essential part of a human being is that we are thinkers. If you want to put it this way, we are organic thinking machines. Which hangs your worth and value then on your ability to think which means what? It's going to elevate those who can think better and it's going to devalue those who can't think as well, which starts to put you on a really slippery slope. Because what does that say then about people with immature thinking ability or people whose thinking is impaired? Does it mean then that they're not as human as you are? That they're not as valuable as you are? You realize it's not a direction in which you want to go. Thankfully, Scripture disagrees with Descartes. It says, no, there's something more ultimate than the fact that you are thinking. And that is that you are worshiping. That you're always orienting your life around something and away from something else. And at the bottom of all of the things that you worship, the bottom of all of your loves is this. You're either oriented toward God or you're oriented away from him that you are embracing all that he is and therefore all that he loves, or you're embracing something else as a substitute. That your value in life then is not based on the quality of your thought. Your value in life is not based on your ability to think. It's based on the quality of who you wrap your life around, who or what. And that means then that somebody who does not maybe have the same mental ability that you have still has the same worth and value that you have because they worship just like you do. They may not be able to explain their worship like you can, but that doesn't change the fact that they are worshiping 24-7 just like you, either worshiping God or something else. That means then what? Your heart is either open to God and all that he is or your heart is hardened against God. So when scripture, getting back to today's passage, when scripture says that the disciples did not understand about the loaves, they did not cognitively process this correctly, but their hearts were hardened, it's telling you the reason why they didn't understand. It's telling you the reason for why their cognitive functioning was off. It's not that they did not have any mental conception of what took place the other day. It's not what it means that they didn't understand. What it means is that their hearts were not aligned with God and with what he was doing. And because they weren't aligned with God and what he was doing, they weren't able to think about things correctly. They were not on the same page with God. They're not able then to perceive Jesus, God himself, come in the flesh, standing there right in front of them, even in the moment that he's revealing himself. And so spiritually, they took two plus two and spiritually came up with five not four. And here's the hard reality of what scripture is saying. 
If your heart is hardened, then spiritually, you'll always come up with five, or six, or seven, or eight, but you will never come up with four. You can be right there. You can see it all in front of you. You can literally see Jesus in the flesh, but you won't be able to make spiritual sense of what you're seeing. And it's not that you are being intentionally obstinate. It's not that you are thinking this through carefully and refusing to acknowledge what is plain to everybody else. Okay, some people may be like that. But that's not the only symptom of a hardened heart. Hardened heart can also show up when you're just clueless to spiritual realities. Clueless to the nature of what God is doing in the world and why he's doing it. But spiritual cluelessness, hardened heart, is dangerous. Because it means then that you will align yourself against him. And you won't realize that you're doing that because your heart will want something else more than it wants him and you'll just do what feels natural to you. That's what's happened to the disciples here. Go back to verse 45. I want you to see how forceful this is. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. That verb there, to make, to make the disciples get into the boat, that verb is really strong. Its semantic domain range includes the ideas of compelling someone to do something, insisting that they do that, forcing them to do something. In other words, this is not a polite invitation that Jesus gave to the disciples. It's not a good suggestion. He made them get into the boat. You realize there's an urgency here, a forcefulness, which hints that the disciples were kind of reluctant to leave. They, they, there was something going on they didn't want to walk away from. Now you think, well, what would that be? Mark tells you that Jesus made sure his guys got away while he dismissed the crowd, sent the disciples in one direction over the sea while he dismissed the crowd in another. He's seeing something shaping up that he doesn't like. Something that he wants to break up. Mark doesn't tell you what this is exactly, but the parallel passage in John chapter 6 does. I'm reading from verse 14. Same, it, same setting. When the people saw the sign that he had done, feeding them by multiplying the loaves and the fish, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That's what Jesus sees in front of him. People getting ready to make him king by force. People who did not understand his mission. They're about to try to make him then fit into the plans that they have, the plans for what they want. They want him to be a king, but a king that they set up over themselves rather than the king that Rome put in over top of them. A king who actually will what? Will deliver them from Roman rule. In other words, what Jesus sees is the danger of a very real messianic uprising, of which there were several in the first century AD out in the wilderness. And this is something that, if you think about it, is totally understandable from the crowd's perspective. Here's Jesus. What do we know about Jesus? He can feed an unlimited number of people out of thin air, he can heal people. We've also heard that he can raise people from the dead. Now put yourself in the crowd's position. 
if you want a king to shake off Roman occupation, what more do you need than Jesus? Put him at the head of the army, and you can't lose. Just think of the logistics that he solves. There's no more lengthy supply train to get supplies to the troops. You don't need that. There's no more field hospital. No more continual recruiting of soldiers since no one needs to replace. He can just raise soldiers up if they get killed. He can heal them, and then he can feed them. With Jesus, you can win any war against any tyrant. No wonder they wanted to force him to be their king. But they did that because they did not see who Jesus is. They don't see that he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who came to bear our sins and our sorrows on the cross. Instead, what do they have in mind? They see a warrior king, different kind of Messiah. They don't understand the miracle any more than the disciples do. Their hearts apparently also are hardened. And so they're not on board with his mission because they have a mission of their own. And so they try to wrap Jesus into their agenda rather than allowing him to draw them into his. His own disciples seem a little starstruck at the idea, a little reluctant to, to leave. So much so that Jesus has to forcefully break all of this up because this is not what he's about. Now here's where it comes home to us this morning. Because humility requires you and me to recognize we could do exactly the same thing. We could do the same thing individually. We could do the same thing as Renewal Mainline. And we would do it for the same reasons. Not because we're intentional, <laughs> but because we also could have hardened hearts and be just as clueless as the disciples. In exactly the same way that the church has been clueless down through history many, many, many times. And when the church has had hardened heart, not been on the same page with Jesus, she's ended up being of absolutely no value to the people around her. Worse, there are a number of times, and you may have experienced this in your own lives, where the church actually hurts people instead of helping them. And the church does that because she tries to tie a different agenda to Jesus and his mission other than the one that he came to this earth with. Tim Keller just put out an online article that I had a chance to read recently. It's how the, he, he traces out how the church in the U.S. went from being the central, one of the central pivotal institutions in our society, somewhere in the middle of last century, went from that high watermark to dramatically losing its size, its, its power, and its influence in our society by the first decades of this century. The mainline denominations led the way. Now mainline, when you use it theologically, it doesn't mean a, a geographical location. It means instead the major denominations, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopal, Presbyterian, American Baptist, so on. Denominations that in the 19th, 1900s went more in a liberal direction, denied the virgin birth of Christ and the miracles. And Keller teases out a variety of reasons for the church's decline that all have to do with how the church adapted herself to the surrounding culture in just a number of different ways until you really couldn't tell much difference between the church and the surrounding society. At which point it just makes sense then that the church would decline 
Because if the church and society are pretty much alike, what, what, what do you need the church for? And what do you need to be part of the church for? Keller summarizes a number of different historians. They tackle the issue from sociological dimensions, from theological dimensions, tracing the root of this decline. I am not going to unpack the article this morning, but I do commend it to you. So if you go online and you search for Keller, decline of the main line should come at the top of your search engine. Keller, decline of the main line. I, I would urge you to do that this afternoon. I think it'd be well worth your time. I do want to reference one of the authors that Keller unpacks. It's a man whose name is Dean Kelly. And he wrote a wake-up call to the mainline denominations in 1972. It was clear at that point that the decline was already taking place. Now, Kelly was a legal scholar, and he was anything but a conservative, which makes his critique all the more compelling because he's writing to the mainline denominations as a mainline insider as a theological and political liberal, trying to call the church back to realize what they were doing. From his perspective, the root cause of the decline was that the liberal church had allied themselves with politics and political causes. Didn't have this article available to me for prep and prayer day, but I think you can hear some of the same themes that we discussed in August. Reading from Keller, quote, they had moved beyond the simple call that the church had done for centuries for Christians to be salt and light in the world. They moved away from that. Caring for their neighbors, working for a more just society, and helping the poor. Instead, the mainline churches identified themselves, and therefore Christianity, with particular political parties and social policies. Kelly predicted that churches that continued to turn themselves into political organizations would see continued decline, unquote. That was a warning to the mainline churches. It was a warning that they ignored in the middle of last century. I would suggest as well that it's a warning that the more conservative evangelical churches seem to be ignoring at the end of last century, moving into the beginning of this one. And you realize that ignoring that warning is easy to do. It's so easy to ally something with Jesus that later takes center stage and pushes Jesus out. It's what the crowd in Mark chapter 6 wants. They want their own version of a Messiah who will push forward their own agenda. They don't want the Messiah that Jesus came to be, and what they want is in danger of capturing the disciples. You realize it's so easy to try to ally Jesus with some other agenda without realizing that that's what you're doing. Again, it's not something that you necessarily have to be conscious about. It's something that can start as easily by saying, yes, we're all about Jesus and Jesus' mission here at this church, and we have these particular ministries to carry that mission out. It's easy to start that way, but later have those ministries start to move to center stage. Start to be the focus of what makes your church distinct from all the other churches. Start to become the, the mission of your church rather than the ministries of the mission so that they become the focus the energy the enthusiasm of your church and so tying a relationship with jesus to every aspect of your life that becomes less interesting less exciting because there's something else that is a little bit more dynamic it's not a danger in just one branch of the church in one time period this is a danger for all of god's people in all time periods going all the way back 
to the disciples. And no one starts down that road because they intend to drift away from Christ. It happens because we all have the same potential that the disciples had. The potential to have hardened hearts and not even be aware of it. To be captured by agendas that just feel natural to us. That make sense to us. That keep us from being drawn into his mission because we are so busy trying to get him on board with our own. How do we avoid that? And let's make this really difficult. How do we avoid something that we're not necessarily aware of? How do you avoid being unintentionally hardened? Here's grace this morning. You don't. You and me, we rely on a shepherd who sees that danger in us, and we rely on him to act, not only to get us out of danger, but to reset our hearts so that they line up with his. How does that happen? I want to show you three things in today's passage with the remainder of our time. Three things that you can be sure of Jesus doing in your life when your heart is hardened and you're completely unaware of it. First, expect him to come to you. Second, look for him to show you his glory. And then third, trust him to stay with you. Expect him to come to you. Look for him to show you his glory and trust him to stay with you. First, expect him to come to you. Jesus sent the guys away for their good, but he didn't stop keeping his eye on them. Now that should amaze you, because again, keep in mind what ha has just happened here. Jesus just fed the crowd in the wilderness, did a miracle that revealed who he is, a miracle full of all of the imagery that takes you back to when God brought his people out of Egypt and then fed them in the wilderness. Jesus has just made his identity super clear, and the disciples missed it. Their hearts were hardened. That's the relational context that Jesus lives within. These are his friends, the people that he's invested in. They've been with him. He's taught them. He's made them partners in what he's doing. He gave them authority to speak for him, to go out and proclaim his kingdom. He gave them power to do all the things that he's been doing. He's done all of that, and they have missed what he's all about. And left to themselves, they are ready to co-opt him for some other agenda. That is the relational context that surrounds Jesus. Look at how good he is to them. He does not berate them, doesn't ignore them, doesn't move on to someone else. He's working with people who don't get him, and what does he do? He sees them. They're still on his radar. He saw, verse 48, that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. He's looking for them. He's looking out for them, still caring about them. He's aware of them and of how hard life is for them right now. And so he doesn't just see the crowds like we noticed last week. He also sees the disciples, the hard-hearted ones who should know better. And just like last week, he has compassion on them even when they're hard-hearted. And so verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, that's between three and six o'clock in the morning, he came to them, walking on the sea. He did not abandon them in their hard-heartedness. He came to them, did not wait for them to figure it out and come to him. That's a God that you can trust when you're missing it as well. 
A God who sees things about you that you don't see about yourself. A God who is not put off by what he sees. Instead, a God who will come to you, who will be proactive to meet you where you are, because that's what you need. That means that you and I need to have a baseline just confidence in him, a trust in him, that he will take responsibility to shepherd us throughout our entire lives. Not just when you and I are where we're supposed to be, <laughs> but even when we're in danger of wandering off. This is a God who will make a special effort to come to you. So look for him to do that in your life. Don't be surprised by, by him when you see him finding ways to come to you, to make you aware of himself. Take the next step. Invite him to do that. Go to him. This is a God that you can trust. Go to him and, and ask him, am I missing you? Are there things that I need to be seen about you that I'm not seeing about you? Has my heart gotten hardened in inadvertently? Am I in danger of missing something? Please, Lord, come to me and let me see. You can pray that and know that he'll answer you because that's a prayer that's in line with his heart for you. So point one, expect him to come to you. Point two, look for him to show you his glory. It's good to know that he will come to you, but you also need to know what he's going to do when he gets there. When your heart is hardened, when you can't see him and his mission clearly, what is it that you need? You need a fresh revelation of him. And that's exactly what he gave these guys. Now, if you grew up in church, this is a fairly well-known story, Jesus walking on the water. It's kind of a weird story, though, isn't it? Kind of a story that you almost think that that doesn't make sense. I mean, when Jesus feeds people, that makes sense. They're hungry. When he heals people, that makes sense. They're hurt or they're sick. When he stops a storm that's about to kill people, that makes sense. Walking on the water, how does that make any sense? Almost feels like it's kind of pragmatic. Like, okay, it's the best way to get from here to there. Like, you know, there's no more boats around or something. Why would he do that? More importantly, why do you and I know that he did that? Why is that important, not just for the disciples? Why is that important for us 2,000 years later? The answer is twofold. The first answer is found in an image. The second is found in a reference. There's an image here, and there's a reference. Take the image first. Think about the picture that you're given here. And ask yourself, what does this picture remind me of? You remember Jesus already gave us the key to his whole life. That every bit of his life is fulfilling all of scripture. So think through the Old Testament passages that you know and ask yourself, where in the scripture have I seen anything like this? Where in, a, in scripture have I seen a person on top of the water, not in the water? You can actually get a little more specific. It's still nighttime. It's the darkest part of the night right before dawn. So you could ask, where have I seen someone on the water when everything around them was dark? Kids, you might know the answer to this. Our children's mystery just started going through Genesis and worked through creation this last week. Get this picture and you start to ask, doesn't this sound like something that happened at the dawn of creation? That time when darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the waters. Here's Jesus in the middle of the night, hovering over the water. It's not a random thing that Jesus is doing. He's giving his disciples another glimpse of who he is. He's revealing himself to them again. That here, walking to them, is God. The completely unmatched God, the creator. The one who is completely different from every creature that you've ever met. The one who is above and outside all that there is because he made all that there is. The one who has power to do whatever he likes in this world because it's his world. He's the one coming to them. That's the picture, the image. But there's also a reference. Because if all you have is that picture, that would be terrifying, right? To come face to face with God in his world when your heart is hardened. Worse, to have him <laughs> come to you. You can't even row against the wind. He seems to have no problem getting to where you are. How's that for frightening? You can't get away, but he can get to you. To do what? What's he coming for? Let's think about the reference. Go back to verse 48. Look at it if you have your Bible in front of you. He meant to pass by them. Think, wait, that's, that's kind of odd. In verse 48... You read, he came to them. He meant to pass by them. You think, well, which, which is it? Is he coming to them or is he passing by them? It can't be both. Actually, it can be because it's a reference to a very important moment back in the Old Testament. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness so that they could be with him. Everything that he did is purely for the sake of them now being friends with him in a way that no one else is. And so he tells them how to live with him. He gives them his law. It's not so that they can earn a friendship with him. They already have friendship with him. He's already rescued them so that they can have friendship with him. But he gives them his law so that they can know what he values. So that they can have their hearts and their values tuned into his own. And then almost immediately after he tells them how to live with him, they break his law. Their hearts were hardened. They worship a couple of idols out there in the wilderness. Moses then intercedes for them. And in that moment, Moses stands between the wrath of God and the hard-heartedness of the people. He actually offers his life in exchange for all of theirs. says, blot me out of your book, Lord, and keep them in. God promises, on the strength of Moses' intercession, that he will not reject his people but that he'll continue to be with them for Moses' sake because he is pleased with Moses. And so he will spare the people. The righteousness of the one is enough to cover the sins of the many. Moses then asks for something. He says to God, please show me your glory. And if you recall, Moses had seen some of God's glory before. He had seen the presence of God in a bush burning without burning the bush up. He saw God's glory earlier, never forgot it. Could not get enough of it. And so he asks God, please show me your glory. And God told Moses that you can't see my face because nobody can see my face and live. But what God said he would do is he'd put Moses in a rock and shelter him, protect him, while God caused his glory to what? To pass by him. That's the phrase he used that he would cause his glory to pass by 
while God proclaims his name and his character to Moses. It's actually another, it, it shows up another place in the Old Testament. Elijah is on the same mountain, prophet Elijah, and God makes his glory pass by Elijah. Same phrase for what's taking place out there on the sea. Jesus meant to pass them by, meaning what? He meant them to see his glory. But why this reference? Isn't that picture of God hovering over the water enough? Doesn't that tell you enough about his divinity? What does him passing by, proclaiming his name, tell you about himself that his hovering doesn't? It's in what God says as his glory passes by Moses. Because as he passes by, he proclaims the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What is God's glory? It's that he's merciful and gracious. That he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That he forgives the people for their hardened hearts that found the idols more interesting than they found him. His glory is that he forgives them for rejecting him. And it's this glory that Jesus wants his disciples to see. That he is not only the God who can do anything that he wants, that he is the all-powerful, transcendent creator. What he wants them to see is that what God wants is to use his power to forgive. That he is the all-powerful redeemer. And if you were reading Greek, you would see him revealing more of himself, tying his identity back to the God who revealed himself to Moses. We translate verse 50 to read, it is I, so that it makes grammatical sense in English. But what Jesus really said in the Greek text was just two words. I am. It's a phrase that can mean something like, it's me, it's I, but it's also the same exact phrase that you find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when God tells Moses his name. That God calls himself, I am. That he's the self-sufficient, all-powerful God. And here on the sea, Jesus takes his name and says to his disciples, Take heart, I am. Jesus walks where God alone can walk. And he takes God's name and claims it for himself. And so he comes walking to his guys on the sea, effectively proclaiming, I am the great transcendent God who forgives hard-hearted people. Who forgives your hardness of heart. I did not come to use my power to conquer, to ruin and destroy. I am not coming as a warrior king. It's not why I'm here right now. I've come to use my power to serve, and especially to serve people whose hearts are hardened, who don't even know that they've missed me when I'm standing right in front of them, who did not understand the revelation that I gave with the loaves, and so what? I give a new revelation. Here's me. Here's me again. Here's me until you can see me. What do you need when your heart is hardened? You need a fresh revelation of this God. That Jesus not only comes to those with hard hearts, but that he comes to forgive their hardness. 
That's who you and I have in Christ. He actually goes on to underline that. Verse 56, he goes throughout the villages, the cities, and the countryside, healing all those who reach out to touch his garment. Now, from what Mark has already told us, you can't really see Jesus just sort of wandering around in marketplaces, shaking his clothes around sick people, and then moving on to the next town. Mark told us early on Jesus was going out proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. But he's not proclaiming that he, the king, is drumming up an army. He could have had that out in the wilderness. He's not that kind of Messiah. He's not a warrior king. He's a servant Messiah. And so he heals as he goes, proclaiming what kind of Messiah is, the kind that you and I need. That's points one and two. He comes to you in order to show you his glory so that point three, he can stay with you. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them. Why is that? Because he wants to live with you. He wants to be with you. That's been God's intention from the beginning, to have a friendship with you. That's why he came as Christ, to regather his people, to live with them. He gets into the boat with them, even though it's going to cost him to do so. Why is it going to cost him? Go back to what God said to Moses, that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. That's the tension that you get throughout the entire scripture. The tension that is brought out by God's revelation of himself. That he is a God who doesn't just want to forgive, he is a God who forgives, and yet he cannot, will not, clear the guilty. What's that mean? He doesn't say to you, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Your hardness of heart's not a big deal. That confuses some people. They don't understand that. They ask questions like, why can't God just forget? Why can't he just forgive? He can't because if he did, that would be unjust. It would be unjust to the people who the guilty sin against, and no one would be okay with that. You think about what is happening in the world around us. All around you, there are cries for justice going out when someone mistreats someone else. Whether that mistreatment is physical, sexual, financial, whatever. When someone abuses someone else or when someone in authority fails to protect someone else, there's a cry for justice. You heard that this last week as representatives from the U.S. women's gymnastics team spoke out against the FBI for not listening to them when they said that they were being molested. What is that? It's a cry for justice. A cry that the guilty not be cleared. For them not to get away with what they've done, or in this case, not to get away with what they left undone. Very similar to the cry that's gone out over the past year, calling out racism and hatred against the black and the AAPI communities. It's a cry that the guilty not be cleared. It's a longing for justice. To live in a world that is just. Now, if you and I with our hardened hearts. If you and I want justice, how much more must God, with his perfectly pure and holy heart, want justice as well? It's why he can by no means clear the guilty. So why would anyone want him to just forgive? It's because we tend to hold a double standard, don't we? When it comes to ourselves, we see that there is no way that we can pay for how we've hurt other people by what we've said or done to them, that we cannot make that go away, whether it's big or small. 
but it offends our pride to hear that someone else has to pay for us. We don't like that. And so we like the idea of a God who would be willing to just gloss over our own sin, just forget all about it. But if you think outside of yourself, you realize, actually, no, I, I don't want a God who lets things slide, who simply lets the guilty off, because that means I won't get justice when someone else sins against me. So here's the tension. You want justice, and you want forgiveness. The same two things that God wants. He wants to forgive you so that you can stay with him, so that he can stay with you. But he can't just let go of what you've done. And here's Jesus, the one who fully resolves that tension. Because Jesus, who shows us God and shows us God's heart like nothing else in the universe, is not hovering over the water. What's he doing? He's walking. Doing what only a human being can do. He's not only fully God, come to forgive the hard-hearted, but he's fully human as well. He's walking, not hovering. He has a body, which means now there's a hope of resolving the tension. Because as fully human, he can identify with us in our humanity. He can connect to our humanity so that what belongs to us can rightly belong to him. But as fully God, he can bear the cost of what we've done against an infinite God. You hear how he has to be both God and human? That there is an infinite cost to pay because we have sinned against an infinite God. But only a human being can legitimately own that cost as their own. God alone cannot pay it because he doesn't owe it. A human being alone can't pay it because we can't bear an infinite cost in a finite amount of time. But Jesus, now walking, not hovering on the water, has come as a human to join himself to our humanity. And so he can legitimately claim the debt as his own and as God, he can pay back so that now God can stay with us. He can live with us. That's what you need to know when your heart is hardened and you're in danger of running to something else. You need this God to stay with you. I was talking to a college friend the other day, not somebody who lives with me. And this guy who is working to make sense of all of the Christian teaching and reading that he's had throughout his whole life said to me, I think I'm starting to get it. He said, the whole point of everything in the Bible is what? It's that Jesus pays to forgive us of our sins so that we can live with him in heaven. Which, which sounds mostly good, except for one part. I hate disagreeing with people, but I, I couldn't let this guy. I asked him, I said, can I poke at that a little bit? He trusts me, so he said, sure. I said, I can walk a long way down that road with you as long as we change that last word, that Jesus did all that he did in order to forgive your sins so that he can live with you now, not in heaven. Friends, that's the whole point. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we call the gospel. It's not that Jesus did something in the past so that something will happen for you in the future. It's that Jesus did something in the past so that he can live with you right now. That's the point of him coming to earth. 
That's the point of him proclaiming his kingdom. That's why it's so dangerous to add anything to him, to replace him with something that captures us more, to try to get him on board with a different mission rather than letting him draw us into his. He came so that we would get on board with his mission of making a way for him to live with us now. So when he comes to you, revealing himself to you so that he can stay with you, welcome him, embrace him, long for more of him. Lord Jesus, stir our hearts. You see us far better than we see ourselves. Lord, see the hardness that is in me. See the hardness that is in my brothers and sisters. And Lord, reveal yourself one more time so that we want something far better than we've ever begun to hope for. Do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Set our hearts free. Amen.